Hey, I'm Gretchen Bridgers of the Always a Lessons Empowering Educators podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Michael S. Daigle. He's a former journalist and editor for over 33 years. He's also the author of the award-winning Detective Frank Nagler thriller mystery series. Today we're focused on his most recent adventure, The Red Hand. And we're going to talk a little bit about the writing process and how he goes about uh, creating his characters. Lots to learn today. Great information. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Michael Stephen Daigle is a writer and journalist who lives in New Jersey with his family. He is the author of the award-winning Frank Nagler Mystery Series, published by Imzadi Publishing, LLC of Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Swamps of Jersey, the first book in the series, 2014, the, uh, the sequel, A Game Called Dead, 2016, and named a Shelf Unbound Best Indie Book runner-up in 2016, The Weight of Living was awarded first place in the 2017 Royal Dragonfly Book Awards, named a Distinguished Favorite in the Independent Press Awards in 2018, a Distinguished Favorite in the Big New York City Book Awards in 2018, and a Notable Indie in the Shelf Unbound Best Indie Awards 2018. The latest book in the series, The Red Hand, was published in 2019. The books follow the investigations of Detective Frank Nagler and take place in the fictional city of Ironton, New Jersey. Daigle was born in Philadelphia and has lived in several states in the Northeast United States, where he was an award-winning journalist, including time at Waterville Sentinel, Waterville, Maine, the Courier News of Bridgewater, New Jersey, and the Daily Record of Parsippany, New Jersey. He has published an electronic collection of stories, The Resurrection of Leo, and a single story about baseball and teenagers, The Summer of the Home Run. Daigle is a member of the Mystery Writers of America, the Greater Lehigh Valley Writer Group, and the Phillipsburg Library Writers Group. He publishes commentary, fiction samples, and poetry at www.michaelstephendaigle.com. And uh, you'll have that in the show notes as well as other ways to get in touch with Michael. And so we're glad to have him here today. So, uh, hey, Michael, welcome. Hi, Stephen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. I'm glad to have you here. And I love the stories. I love the character, Frank uh, Nagler. And uh, we're, you know, it's, it's, this is cool talking to, to you about uh, your character and your writings and such. So uh, thanks very much. So let's, uh, let, we're going to get into your book, The Red Hand. But before we do that, let's talk about something that was in your bio. You know, one of the things that's, uh, that's happened is that for 33 years, you were a journalist and editor at uh, several newspapers. Do you remember what it was like when you had your first column or story? Um, yeah, it's, it's, the fun part is seeing your name in print. I mean, it's this, this sort of magical thing. But I remember when I walked into the newsroom at, at a little newspaper called the Fairhaven Advocate. It was a weekly newspaper. Um, we had one computer. We were on the second floor of a, of a small office space. And I had been doing other things. I was in my early 30s. I walked into that newsroom and said, I can do this. And, and instantly knew I was home. And that's where I stayed in that business for the next three decades. Um, there's just something about um, 
that business that was just really attractive. And it, it's sort of, and we were a startup. Um, so, you know, startups take on weird ideas and we sort of did whatever we felt like uh, within, within the scope of trying to draw an audience. Um, and that part of that part of it, that was why the news business was fun. Um, we, I worked with tremendous, um, tremendously talented and directed people. Um, and we all had the same idea of every day putting out the best newspaper we could. So. Very cool. And I, I can imagine what that, that first time seeing your name associated with that call or whatever, that's a, it's gotta be a neat feeling. That's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And you just go, Hey, we did it once. Let's do it again. See what happens. I can imagine kind of a little addictive there, which is cool. The, uh, so I think we hear a little bit of the answer to this next question I've got, but has writing just kind of been your thing? Has it been something that you've always liked or is it something you kind of learned to do and thought this is cool? Um, I just started doing it. Uh, as, as a kid, um, I was in, you know, one of the, one of 9 million garage bands in the, in the early sixties. Um, um, and, we had a songwriter. I didn't write, I couldn't write lyrics, but I just wrote, started writing stories and little things down. And, um, I've always had the ability to string words together. Um, that got me in trouble in college because sometimes I didn't necessarily read what I was supposed to be writing about, but you know, I winged it, <laughs> got, got through college. And, uh, but then it was just a matter of just always writing things down. And then in my early twenties, um, I wrote, two draft novels uh, just because I felt like I could. Um, one, I still have. It wasn't, I read it, I read part of it recently. It wasn't as bad as I actually thought it was. Um, but the other one became the Frank Nagler series. And there I was at 22, 23. I didn't know anything about writing. I didn't know anything about cops. I didn't know anything about newspapers. But I sat down and said, I could write this book. And so I did. Very cool. Very cool. They, uh, you know, your your book, The Red Hand, is a prequel to The Swamps of Jersey. So bef- before we get to The Red Hand, let's talk a little bit about your first book, The Swamps of Jersey. Okay. Um, the Swamps of Jersey actually was an attempt. The, the absolute first book in the series was called A Game Called Dead. Um, it started, I, I, I found a, a little police item in the newspaper, stuff oddly that 30 years later I would write you know, six of them a day, you pick them up off the police log and they're, you know, they're, they're just filler on the back pages of, of your local section. Um, but there was a, um, somebody broke into a college dorm on a weekend. Nobody was there, stole some cash and some jewelry and, you know, little stuff that could be fenced and not traced and nobody ever caught him. And it's like, okay. So I wrote the thing about a guy getting on a bus and going and breaking into a dorm and getting away with it. Uh, you know, four paragraphs or something. Um, and then I said, okay, well, what happens if you meet somebody? Um, and then what happens if they have a, a more of an interaction than just running into each other accidentally? And that became how I created a game called Dead. Um, and that was, then I actually went to work for a living and it sort of <laughs> sat around and I had to, uh, and I edited it and reworked it. And then I, went, I decided one day I was going to seriously try to put this book in shape. Um, and it changed completely. It, it moved from New York to New Jersey. Um, uh, it became 
more about um, uh, Frank Nagler and not just this random guy breaking into dorms, who actually turned out to be Charlie Adams in the long run of the series. Um, but it, it was like, okay, let me sit down and rewrite this thing. And it became a completely different story. Uh, and that happens because I was a different person when I took it on again uh, and actually figured out something about writing and, and um, had spent some time in the news business and actually you know, interviewed police and covered court hearings and things like that. had a little more idea what I was actually doing, um, which gets scary, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and so I moved it. There was a, there's a scene that I actually replicate in the book. I had had this conversation with the, the, the town of Ironton is roughly based on Dover, New Jersey. Uh, it's an old iron manufacturing center. Uh, now it's pretty much a, a suburb, suburban town like most of New Jersey is. Uh, I had this conversation with the old mayor. We got along, you know, he grumbled about things we wrote about and I grumbled about his inability to run the town and <laughs> we went back and forth. Um, and I, and I, uh, and I was t I was ragging on him because downtown Dover at the time consisted of about six law offices and five beauty salons. And, and I kind of said, you know, this is, doesn't look like economic growth to me. <laughs> you know? And he just waved his hand and mumbled off. So the next day I was over in their park, which was, um, uh, they've created a, a small urban park in the middle of town. It's not a nice little respite from what's a pretty heavily built up area. Uh, it used to be a, a, um, a depot on the Morris Canal, which is this famous uh, canal that came through Morris County. Um, and so I was sitting there having lunch, and, and I looked around, and I had this reporter's conversation with myself, uh, which is about um, how things, there was actually stuff going on. Uh, the library was being uh, having work done on, on the brick. People were painting houses. Traffic at that intersection is was then and is now as jammed up as ever. It's probably the worst intersection in all of New Jersey because it leads to the interstate highway and they never widened it to do anything. They never added turning lanes or anything like that. So you got lots of trucks trying to get back to the highway stuck on this little narrow street. Nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nice. And so I'm sitting there going, you know, there's more here than meets the eye. And so I made a note about, let me do a story about maybe there's something going on. And a couple of weeks later, I actually did a story about the changing prospects of Dover's economy. But then as I was finishing up lunch, the, that comment came back to me, but it was in a woman's voice. And that woman became Lauren Fox, who becomes Frank Nagler's companion in all of the other books except The Red Hand. And what she and and what I did is I, I turned that into a scene where she has said that there's more here than meets the eye to Frank about 30 pages before this. And he's sitting in the park going, what does that mean? And so he starts looking around the park at all of the objects that are in the park, the gazebo, the playground, the old uh, you know, war memorial uh, uh, that was put in the ground, you know, 100 years ago. And all of a sudden the story made sense. And then I went back and rewrote it based on that particular scene. And so in, in the end of the book, Frank Nagler does exactly that. Cool. So. Very cool. That that's cool to, to hear how you you're thinking, how it came about and how it was, you know, just became yeah. part of what you did. I, I just think that's neat. Your main process. A lot of it, I think, I think you look for, I mean, you don't record 
you don't put into a book everything you did every single day because that really gets boring. <laughs> but there are things that um, there are there are little there are places when the lights go on, and you want to record those. And I use that in the book because it was, you know, for me it was symbolic as a writer that that's when the book changed. So awesome. So the, you know. One of the things that uh, it is really cool. I love I love thrillers. Your book is a thriller. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about what makes a thriller thrilling? Because you know, I, and I also like you to talk a little bit about what inspired you to write a thriller. Because I mean, it, you know, lots of people get in. They, we got people who write um, murder mysteries. We got people who write uh, things that are uh, romance novels. We got people who write sci-fi. We got people who write you know all kinds of horror or just whatever else you want to label it. <laughs> and uh, why do, why does this, this kind of thriller genre? I like, I like the thrillers within the, the police procedural because um, one, it has something to do with my chaotic writing style. Um, <laughs> I sort of throw things at the page and see what happens. And I like creating that mess to sort it out. And that's sort of how Frank, in, in a, at a very basic level, that's how Frank solves crimes. He sort of looks at the mess and picks something out and works on it. But I like the idea that you can move the reader um, through, uh, through a story. Uh, and you can do it in a way that you don't have to put, fill the page with blood and guts. You, you, you fill the page with suggestion. And that's where the real terror comes from, is that this is, is suggested that this could happen. Um, and then you sort it through and maybe you lead the reader down the wrong alley and then you get there and go, hey, wait a minute, this isn't where we're supposed to be. Let's go, let's go over a block and see what happens. And, and, and I just, I, you know, it, it creates within the story the sense that, you're, that not everything is as concrete as it seems and so there's some sorting and some thinking that must be applied to it. Um, and with with the red hand, um, Charlie Adams is, is, is a character, I and mean, he's been introduced before. Uh, in in the uh, a game called Dead, he shows up in court, and that's like, because he has periodic parole hearings, and he shows up in court and blows up the story uh, later on. But here he is before he did all of that. And, um, but he doesn't really get, he doesn't really personally show up in the book in a real way until almost, you know, three quarters of the way through it. It's all him as a suggestion and what he does and what the victims are. And that I think adds to the suspense and the terror because these are just regular people and they're getting preyed on and the city is getting preyed on and who is doing this. Um, and then when he shows up, he's just this snarling, nasty human being, you know, so. With a with a great name, by the way, because he's a nasty character who has a, the most innocent-sounding name ever. Yeah. Okay. Charlie yeah. Adams. Just yeah. a regular guy, you know? Yep. I love walking, it. Walking around with my club here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that in itself, you know, that's what's one of the things I like about your style and the way it works is that it's, uh, you know, and, and just the something that you said a minute ago, the idea that you go down one direction and, you know, the you lead me that way. And then it's like, thanks for following me here, but this is not where we're going, you know? (laughs) Well, I think that's part of what, that's why I like writing them, writing the mysteries and the thrillers is because it gives you a chance to sort of explore the storytelling. Um, 
in the in the weight of living which is the third book i introduced this young girl standing in a uh, a grocery store dumpster on a cold night wearing summer clothes uh, without shoes and the whole scene begins where she's in the police station she doesn't say anything uh, Frank Nagar goes in and tries to get her to talk and there's this whole discussion about whether or not she might be homeless and all of that and all of that's a red herring um, because the most important line in the whole thing is when she's walking out of the police station with a social worker a cop comes in and does a double take and his sergeant says hey do you know her and he goes nah nah I she's just you know so so cold and dirty I don't know um, and that's the most important line in the whole scene. And it takes, it takes place four pages in. Nice. And the whole thing is a setup. You're so worried about this girl that you sort of miss that line. Um, and that was intentional. <laughs> you know? Awesome. Yeah. I love it. I love that type of stuff. So keep, keep doing that. That's a okay. that's cool device. Yeah. It's fine. And I'll, I'll fall for it every time. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's what, you know, that's what mystery writers hope. Is you, you have to do it so that the reader falls for the, the misdirections um, so that they're surprised because uh, if they're not, <laughs> you know, you, you haven't really laid it out there particularly. That's the fun part of writing those things. And, and, and when you're writing non mysteries, you sort of do the same thing, but you do it in different ways. It just takes longer, you know, because uh, you're not trying to shock the reader on page, you know, 112, you know, right. That's cool. That's uh, you know, it's funny because I, I know in, in, I've found myself going back, going, now, wait a second. I remember something about this. <laughs> where, where did that show up? So, cool. The, uh, so, let's, let's talk about your uh, main character, Detective Frank Nagler. You know, you've talked a little bit about where the idea came from. Let's get a little bit more into that. And, you know, and have you, is he really just kind of a creation, or have you based upon somebody in history, somebody real, or somebody you know? Um, he is a creation. Uh, I, I thought of Frank Nagler when I was in my early 20s. Um, I decided that I could write three books about him. And the first one, he'd be miserable. The second one, less miserable. And the third one, a little less miserable. <laughs> um, but the problem was that in the first, the first iteration of Frank Nagler, he was 75. He was a retired cop. And the first book, the first version of A Game Called Dead had him not investigating a, a crime, but meddling in a crime. <laughs> And it sort of worked, and I may use that again uh, after I get Frank to be back to being 75. Um, but I realized that I had to make him younger if I was going to do a whole series because 75-year-old cops don't last very long. Right. You know? So <laughs> I didn't need him to die in the middle of the second book. Um, but he's a, a totally – he was just a character then, and what he became later is – um, a symbol of what is the city of Ironton. Uh, I gave him a backstory where he grew up in what I call the workers' ghetto. Um, his family worked in the local mills, and even his grandfather worked in the local mines um, as as as, a, as an adult. And but yet they were um, ground down by by the work. They did hard work, low pay. Um, and the, it helps create the settings for understanding the social divide and the economic divide within Ironton. And that's where his, his wife, Martha, comes in. Because Martha, as he says more times than I can count, he, she's the one who led him out of the workers' ghetto. 
Um, she was she came from the nice middle class side of town, uh, and they started hanging around when they were six or seven. And he just he follows her out, and and they became this wonderful couple. Um, they went through the teenage years fighting, and uh, but then uh, she developed, she uh, developed leukemia when she was seventeen, and that um, became a real horror story for them. And her story in the Red Hand is that it's come back, um, and so he's dealing with uh, he's a rookie cop dealing with a very sick wife and dealing with the, the most serious crime spree Ironton has seen in a hundred years. And the, and, and the, the fun part about Charlie Adams and uh, Frank Nagler is that he says at one point to Martha, I could have been him. And she just looks at him and says, no, you couldn't have. There's something in you that doesn't make you what he is, although your backgrounds are the same. And so they're both coming from this have, have not um, battle from different sides of it. Um, and that's part of the reason he um, <clears throat> works as a character, because he represents that side of Ironton, which is always trying to be better um, and trying to overcome what has been, an, uh, was once a, a glorious economic uh, history that just fell into bad times through neglect and greed and all the other things that wear towns down. And that's Frank. That's him. He's standing there going, this is my town. Um, so we try to keep him in that, uh, in that sort of mindset. Very cool. Very cool. I, and I love that type of character. I, 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 he's, he, you got a good one. <laughs> just, Thank you. They, they, uh, your books include a number of other characters, and many of them are strong female characters. Can you share a little bit about how you develop their personalities? I mean, for example, you, do you start by creating them and then develop the story, or do some of them appear as the story unfolds during your writing? I mean, with this, I also have to ask, do you outline your story from the beginning, or do you just start and see where your imagination takes you? Um, I start... Uh, with the idea of the story, and I just start writing it down. As I'm writing the story, I actually do make a few notes uh, to remind myself that I said this on page 60, and I need to fix it by page 160, you know. Uh, but I write forward and backwards at the same time. I don't really plot these out, but I have an idea where it's going. Um, in the, the Weight of Living, I knew what the last line was going to be once I wrote the, the initial scene, but I thought that Frank Nagler was going to say it. Um, and that would have been an appropriate ending. He didn't say it. It was said to him. Um, yes. And it changed the last 40 pages of the book because I had to go back and kind of maneuver the story to that point where this line is delivered to him by someone else. Um, but I like that process. I, I, and part of the reason I don't outline everything is I want to be surprised every now and then. I want my characters to do something that I don't expect. And that was one of those unexpected things. Um, the women come out of it. Um, and that's sort of a, 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 an homage to the fact that in the newspaper business, um, and I, there are just so many strong reporters and editors that I worked with, um, who I learned a lot from, but I also interacted with politicians and, and leaders of nonprofits and business women and all of that, um, all of whom um, are models for what you'd hope 
a business leader would be, what a politician should be. Um, <clears throat> and you want to bring and and you want to bring that factor into your stories. And every one of the books has a variety of women who influence Frank in a lot of ways. In the in the back three books, Lauren Fox plays that role. She's um, becomes a city planner and and uses her instinct and ability with with uh, documentation to help Frank solve crimes. Um, in, in a game called Dead, uh, there's Harriet Wadley Jones, whose name I just never got rid of. I really liked the name. In the first version of it, she's just a roaring, uh, pain-in-the-butt feminist without character. Uh, she changes in the rewrite of the book, and, and she provides real substance backstory to the whole thing. But the, the woman who has to be stronger is Martha. Um, she's the woman whose life put him into a 20-year funk. Um, and what about her was so much different than the rest? I mean, she's not city planner. She's not a college professor. She's, she's a teacher. Um, but she's been his companion since they were seven. Um, they have a very strong relationship that survives all of this stuff. And she's brave. I mean, she's dealing with the deadly disease and there's one scene at the end of uh, near the end where Frank is uh, in the red hand where Frank um, has gotten clubbed over the head uh, during a, a riot. And the doctor's saying, well, I think we need to keep him in the hospital overnight, given your condition. And she turns to the doctor and says, why is everybody talking about my condition? I'm dying, doc, get over it, but I'm not dead yet. You know, um, and you want you want her fighting not for her, just for herself, but for Frank. Um, and she provides that real strength um, that he relies on. And that's part of why he, spend, he spends his time arguing with himself. Am I, am I doing enough to support her? Um, but meanwhile, I have to catch this guy. Uh, so he's torn by that his whole life. And I think they just add, uh, we got good cops uh, in, in, in uh, um, the weight of living, Maria Maria, Ramirez shows up and she's just this wizard cop who, you know, reminds Frank every now and then she walks up and she's got a device where she walks up and pats him on the cheek a couple of times and says, Frank, pay attention, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and, and they add so much to the story uh, that I think without them, the stories would not be the same. So. Well, that's what, that's what fascinates me is with an author, author as you have done is you create characters that are in and around the story and they're, they make, you know, you, you kind of look forward to the, their, their appearance or whatever they're going to do. And I think that's cool. So they neat stuff. So you know, one of the things that uh, I want to get into now is the red hand is about the hunt for a serial killer. It starts with the finding of a victim. Could you take a minute to entice the listeners into wanting to know what comes next? Um, yeah. The, the, the original telling of that story, I started at the beginning with victim number one, victim number two, victim number three. Um, because it's a prequel, um, I already knew what was going to happen. And it was really bad. Uh, it, was, it was boring. And, you know, I wasn't writing the story. I was sort of dictating the story. So then I had a conversation with a gentleman uh, at a book fair. He was a music producer. And he, we were talking about the difficulties of that kind of stuff. And he said, you know, I get my guys, they come in. And they've written some hot new sheet overnight and they can't play it. 
So I take the music away, put them in a, in a sound room and tell them to, to riff for 15 minutes and then come back and try it again. He said, your problem, and he said, I don't write anything, but I know what the problem is, is you're trying to tell the story, you're trying to tell your characters what to do. You gotta let, you gotta reverse that process. Um, and once I figured that out, I started the, um, the killing spree in the middle of the killing spree. Um, and I and it was able to give me this down, splashy downtown, very public murder that happens late at night, so it's not like it attracts a crowd, but it gave me the ability to go sideways and backwards at the same time. And the anticipation is this happened here, and the medical examiner calls it a, um, an experiment in death, but you also, there's one key element for all of these killings that's very key, and what, what the medical examiner says to Frank is that don't pay attention to anything else, pay attention to this aspect, but don't tell anybody, you know? And that's my wink to the reader that you're really gonna have to read later to figure out what this aspect is and how you build that piece into um, <clears throat> all of these killings because they handle, they, handle they, they take place, excuse me, over many months. And when they go back and look at the three that preceded that, there's no pattern. It's not like they were in the same place. Um, they show up in different places in the city uh, over a long period of time. And you want, and you want people to ask, why these victims? And that's what I focused on when I write about Charlie Adams, is focusing on what, who the victims were and how did they manage to cross his path. Uh, I love it because it's, and, and first of all, it's neat to hear how, you know, how it started and then how it became based upon that advice, because I, I like a story that starts in the middle. <laughs> You're like, okay, what the heck happened here? <laughs> and, and I, I like that type of thing because then it makes you, then you start wondering, especially in thrillers and such, you know, what's going to be real and what's not. And can you believe the people that are telling you what they're telling you? and uh, all that sort of good stuff. So kudos for starting there with that uh, in the middle like that. It just, it, you know, once I, once I figured that out, it just made the rest of the writing easier. Uh, and I used a lot of what I had previously written, just adapted it to where I dumped it into the story. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was a hard book to write because I already knew everything, you know? <laughs> I mean, I had written about this in three other books and and I knew about the character. I knew the, I knew what the outcome was going to be. And it's, it's the challenge is how do you write it so that you don't just recite, you know, chapter and verse. Um, and one of my friends who read it actually made them one of the more interesting comments. Um, she had read the other books, and she she said, you know, what was interesting? I I knew I thought I knew what this book was going to be about, and was surprised as I read the book, how engaged I became in the telling of what I thought I knew. Um, and I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> that works. That was, that's eventually where I tried to end up. So that anyone who had read the previous three books and knew what these supposed secrets in the story were, um, could read it and then be intrigued enough to keep reading, even though they came across a point that said, oh, okay, that's what I thought happened and then still have them be surprised by what happened. So. And so that's cool because it just says getting back to the, something I said earlier, that type of, you know, it, it's, there's certain devices and, and, and sometimes people mean well 
and they can't make that work. And I can think of some very not so long ago prequels that were made into movies yeah. <laughs> that, and um, especially in the sci-fi world that there were some struggles with them because it's almost like they, they didn't know how to make it magical for you because you knew that this character is going to end up dead or you knew that this character is going to end up this way. And, but they didn't know how to draw you and suck you in. And that's cool. You know, it's, it's neat that you can do that because uh, that's, that, you know, it, if it all feels new, it's good. Well, and, and you're trying to make sure that the reader cares about the character. If they, if they open this book and they don't really care about Frank Nagler, they're not going to read it. Uh, they don't care that that women are being killed around town, and it creates um, it creates a firestorm in the city. I mean, there are events that carry on that just build through the whole story, as the population both is scared, um, but also concerned that they haven't caught this guy. Um, there's there's individuals who are getting chased down the street, and there's street rallies and and then street riots and all sorts of stuff because the, there's just so much unknown. Um, and if you can't, if I can't create that in a way that the reader cares about it, they're not going to read it. Um, and if they don't do that, then they're not going to go to the next ones where I help explain even more of this. And that was the tricky part with Martha, is that anyone who read the other books knows what happens to Martha. And how do you write that so that you care about her? And I and I was it's weird because I was we finally got the audio version of the Red Hand out after you know arguing with the the, the, the company for several weeks after it was already produced and approved. Um, but I was listening. I was listening in particular to the Frank and Martha scenes uh, because they're key to the whole thing, and he nailed them. You're, you're, you're in there. If you're not moved by what's going on between Frank and Martha from about the first third of the book on, I'm not sure what you're reading a book for because these two characters interact and support and tear down and um, all of the stuff that happens uh, in a relationship in, in very stark terms. And, and, it just dawned on me that you know there, it sounded better than I thought I wrote it. You know, <laughs> okay, I got you. You know, um, and it's it's it, but it was interesting. It was a terrific reading. Um, cool. Um, guy named Dane Peterson. We we searched for months trying to find somebody, and uh, yeah, he nailed it. He really nailed it. <laughs> That's cool. So cool. So, and and so what he was doing so well at is using your words. And what's cool here is that, you know, one of the things I love in your, in your book is that you, you create amazing imagery with your words and from the way the characters talk, which you have a couple characters that just make me think of characters I've met in real life. Okay. That uh, is so cool. The scenery, the town and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about your writing style? I mean, what are you, how, how are you achieving that, that imagery with your words? Uh, a lot of that comes from being a reporter for so long. Um, you observe. Um, you have to be curious. But I, you know, I worked in a lot of places that look like Ironton, um, and uh, the the goal is to connect that background with character. Um, so you have Frank walking through the streets, uh, trying to make sense of what he's doing and what the city is doing, and yeah. You, you go to street fairs, you go, you go to town meetings, you go to crime scenes, you stand out in the middle of the night watching a, a propane 
tank truck emit burning gas waiting for it to explode and things like that. And, and you can't help but you have to figure out how to describe that to somebody who's going to read it in the newspaper the next day but wasn't there. Um, so you're always writing for an audience that needs to be informed. And part of that is the way things look and sound and smell and, and feel. Uh, and in uh, writing fiction, you have to create that, that grittiness so that it connects with the reader and connects with the character. And you do that through descriptions. You do that through the way characters talk. Uh, some of the, I've been reading a lot of, of uh, a lot of books lately where all the characters sound the same and we don't, you know, <laughs> we all talk differently. Um, we all have different speech patterns and you want that to be part of the background in the story so that your minor characters have impact. Uh, they, you just don't need them to fill up the space because if all they're doing is filling up space, why did you put them there? You know, you want them either to become part of the big plot mechanism or to be so engaged in everything else that's going on that they're essential to the story. And it just adds, I think, to the, when I see a book where characters are speaking in jargon and, and speaking in street jive, and then they walk into some guy who's a college professor, and he talks like he's you know, uh, reading Shakespeare, and they all do that in the same scene. It's like, okay, that's fun. You know? And that's what you want to do. Right. That's cool. Because we all know people like that. <laughs> yes, very much so. Very much so. I, you know, it's, I, I think I may have told you one time, you know, like um, my dad had a unique language that was kind of brought up from being the, the Italian side. There's a little bit of, you yeah. know, kind of that Italian Chicago mixing yeah. in with uh, the, the regular English and all that sort of stuff. And so he's always had some of these, he had these unique words that uh, I, I could say to him, dad, what, what word is that? <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, and it's funny because you have, you have a character like that. You just have, but you're right. We all have a different way of speaking and it's kind of cool when you run into those people and you've created some of them who have a very unique way of speaking and it, it adds something neat to it. I, you know, I had a professor in college who was a history professor who was also a medieval history, European history professor. And the way he spoke fit with the, with the subject, he had this flamboyant talk that I, yeah. I, you know, it was, and these pauses that he put in, uh, you know, were just amazing. And it's like, and I think about him now as a kid, I just appreciated what he knew about history, but yeah. in, in the world today, I think about, he actually was more than just that, uh, okay. th that yeah. professor. He was that character that uh, fit that Absolutely. well. And yeah. Cool. yeah. I mean, when I was listening to, um, the reading of the, of the red hand, um, I just started laughing when, Frank went down to the jewelry store and was talking to Manny Calabrese, this old Italian guy who, who he talks like, you know, hey, I'm from the old country. What the heck? And he nailed it. And it was like, holy smokes, look at that, you know? And that's what you want to hear in a reading, but that's what you want your minor character to do. You want him to, to be somebody who, he's, because he's actually giving good information that Frank uses in that scene, but you don't want him to say, well, yes, Frank, this is this, and this is this, and we did, you know, it's like, hey, Frankie, what's up going on, man? How are you? 
you know, how's that wife of yours? You know, and, and you know, old merchants do that. They just have that ability to, to break down the barrier and you're their friend. You've been in the score for 12 seconds and they absolutely know who you are, you know, and that's Manny Calabrese, you know. I love it. That character just is so speaks to me on so many different levels. And uh, you really get because you, you, you look forward to his talk. You look forward yeah. to his part of the conversation is what I meant. Cool stuff. So well, keep on doing that. You know, it, it, uh, Michael, as we're getting ready to, to close, um, I want to make sure that where can someone connect with you and pick up a copy of your books? And by the way, are there more coming? I am working on the next Frank. Maybe I got, I've got, I've got probably 10 different scenes and I'm trying to find an opening and I finally found one I think that works <laughs> because, because the problem with this one is that when I finished um, the weight of living and Frank did not say the last line, I essentially sort of figuratively threw him off a cliff. Um, and when I started to write it, uh, what be, what be, what I started to write is the fifth book, the fourth book, uh, which was going to be the, the one after the, the weight of living and have him land on the ground and live through it. Um, I ended up writing the red hand, which took place 20 years before. So Frank at the moment is just sort of, Hey, he's like Wiley coyote. He's kind of drifting down uh, toward that Acme target. And I have to give him a soft landing and it was a hard thing to do. So I finally figured out a landing for him where he addresses uh, some of these things that are going to be explored later. So I'm working on that one. I'm also working on a, uh, a non-mystery book that that is an experiment. I'm just kind of writing random things, and I'll see how it connects. And it's fun. And I'm, I'm writing that one because I want to change the writing style a little bit. When I go back and, and hone in on the next Frank Nagler book, I want to see what I've learned from writing a non-mystery in, in, in an absolute random process just to see what, what goes on. So um, all of these books, uh, there two of them are available. The Swamps of Jersey and um, the Red Hand are available in in both ebook, paperback, and audiobook. Um, we're working on audiobooks of the rest of them, but it'll take us a few months. You can find them on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, you can find them at Walmart.com for some reason. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, you can reach me at my website, uh, michaelstephendagle.com. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. Um, uh, you know, you can, you know, it drives my, my nephew is an attorney in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, and it drives him crazy because whenever someone Googles him, they find me. <laughs> he's, he's the other Mike Daigle, um, which is what we call each other all the time. Um, we call each other up. We used to call each other's offices and say, hi, this is Mike Daigle. Am I in? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's, and as a note, I, I did that. I Googled you and, and, yeah. and I'm like, I don't think this is the, the one I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's me. And then there's him. He just wanted to, he was, a he worked for the, um, uh, federal district court in Allentown PA for 20 odd years. And, um, now he's working in private practice. Um, and so he's gaining a, uh, an internet presence. But before, when you Googled Michael Daigle, you got me, no. <laughs> you <know? laughs> which is just the weirdest thing in the world, but that's okay. 
<laughs> nice. You know, it's, it is a strange thing, isn't it? <laughs> Say, oh. I think I'll look myself up today. <laughs> I, I exist. I'm, it used to be you existed if you're in the yellow pages, you know. Right, right. But now yeah. you, you have to be on Instagram. You have to be on Facebook. You have to be on Twitter. And, you know, I, I'm going to redo my website. I'm probably going to uh, probably come up my my brothers and his wife are a folk act and they have a YouTube page and you know I'm probably gonna have to do something like that you got to find some way to uh, expand your online presence so people find you you know you're right the more places you are the, the yeah. better it helps that that name pop up so yeah, that's something it's, nobody as a writer ever figures out what they have to learn but that's the hardest stuff and you have to figure out how to do that so we're everywhere <laughs> good luck with that yeah. And you're right. Got to make it everywhere. Got to make it everywhere. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. So good, good stuff there. So, and I'll make sure that I have uh, links to uh, your social media presence and your website and all that on, uh, on my show notes. So people are listening can be able to find it there. And, and I got last two questions and they go like this. If you had a chance to talk with someone who is wanting to write their own novel, what is one piece of advice you would want to give them? First, start writing, and second, don't second guess yourself. Um, I see that I've joined. I see this on some online writers groups, and everybody goes, "Oh, I don't know what to do. I read this, and it said I should do it this way. I should ignore all of that. Sit down with your pen and your paper, your laptop, your phone, whatever device you use, and just start writing." We I we had a woman come into the Phillipsburg Writers Group, and she was. Um, uh, she had written things as a child and now she was older and, and trying to figure out how to write. And what we told her is go home and write four sentences. Um, those four sentences will have not been written by anyone else. Those are your four sentences. And then the next write, write four more and the next night write four more. Um, and it almost doesn't matter what those 12 sentences actually say, but they're your sentences. No one else has written those 12 sentences. Um, you have to find a way to build confidence. Um, and, we, and, and everyone gets caught up in, in the grammar and, and the punctuation and do I use this font and that. It's like none of that matters until you're ready to publish the book. And, that, and there, guess what? Your publisher will take care of most of that for you. Um, just simply start to tell your story, whatever it is. Um, and it could be your entire story from the day you were born. Nobody's told that story. Have enough confidence in yourself that that's the story you'll tell. So That's awesome advice. I love it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, because you're, it's so right. I mean, it's no one else does, has written those four sentences or whatever it is and yeah. or has your story. It. Don't overthink it. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, I want to write this great book. Well, you're not going to write the great book if you don't start writing the great book. <laughs> yeah, kind of difficult, right? <laughs> yeah. you, can't think you, you can't think your way through this process. You actually have to put words on something, you know, and, and nice. you try, you know, it's mostly trying to remove the pressure. You know, just write the story. The rest of it will take care of itself, you know. So there true. Are, there are experts who know how to get your book published, you know, but they don't know how to write your book for you, and they can't. So you have to write it. Um, sit down and do it, you know. 
Love that advice. Love it. Last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Um, I, I, I moved around through a lot of schools. Um, but I was always, uh, I remember a third grade teacher whose name I don't remember uh, at the Cherry Street School in Phoenix, New York, uh, where we used to, it had this great, uh, uh, it was a great brick building. Um, and the bricks were so deeply set that you could walk around the building by climbing on it. And that's what we used to do during recess. Nice. And, and the principal would yell at us all the time. <laughs> um, it was fun. Um, but I, I remember I was out, uh, I had chicken pox or something like that. And they sent me home and I came back and I said, it really didn't get this done. And she kind of looked at me and goes, where there is a will, there is a way. <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, okay, you know. Uh, and and later on, I, it, I I was just lucky they t- had people encouraging me to do whatever it was that I was doing. And fortunately, when I got into the newspaper business, the the people I worked with had years of experience, and and sometimes the newspaper business is, is portrayed as being this cutthroat. Uh, inter, you know, just nasty business, and it's not. Everyone has skills, and everyone is willing to share those skills, um, and I learned so much from these guys. We had a guy at the uh, Waterville Sentinel uh, who was the best headline writer, the best wire editor I ever met. He knew how to present news on a page so people would read it, and when he, when he started talking about that, he just paid attention, you know, um, because they knew it, and but and and I was fortunate to work in in a small bureau in Dover, uh, New Jersey, for the Daily Record, which was this incubator. We had two or three new guys, and we had four or five veterans, and it was the place that you wanted to be as a rookie reporter because um, we broke down uh, the nonsense. You know, uh, no one was no one was better than anyone else. No one. Um, knew more than anyone else, but if you needed help with the project, you turned around and asked the guy next to you, said, how do I do this? Who do I call? And, you know, we provided sources and, and, and direction and things like that and discussed the stories are in the paper to break them down about how the reporting was done, how the editing done, how the layout was done, uh, because that's, that made us a better newspaper if we all understood those things. Um, and that's the atmosphere I grew up in. And that's why uh, when we have new writers come into our writers groups, you try to get them to focus. Uh, don't worry about all the externals. Just deal with the words. Deal with the words in your own thoughts. And that, those are the things that, that I was taught and you try to teach. So. Very cool. Good stuff. So, Michael, thank you so much for for sharing your book, The Red Hand. I love it. Great characters and a fascinating, thrilling read. And uh, thank you for Detective Nagler. I I think he's so (laughs) cool. I I like the character himself. And looking forward to future adventures and uh, wishing you the best in all that you do. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you taking the time and having this conversation. These are um, having having the chance to explain how you do things. Is, is one of the, uh, the opportunities that get presented to a writer. And I just love talking about that. And I appreciate your, your insightful questions and the opportunity to talk to you, you and, your, and your viewers. Thank you. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. 
Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.